I would invite you this morning to take a Bible with me. We're going to look at two texts this morning, the Old Testament text and also the Gospel text for today. The Old Testament text comes from 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter, the first seven verses. And then in just a moment, we'll go to the Gospel of John, to the 18th chapter. But here is 2 Samuel 23. These are David's last words. This is the declaration of Jesse's son, David, the declaration of a man raised high, a man anointed by the God of Jacob, a man favored by the strong one of Israel. The Lord's spirit speaks through me. His word is on my tongue. Israel's God has spoken. Israel's rock said to me, whoever rules rightly over people, whoever rules in the fear of God is like the light of sunrise on a morning with no clouds, like the bright gleam after the rain that brings grass from the ground. Yes, my house is this way with God. He has made an eternal covenant with me, laid out and secure in every detail. Yes, he provides every one of my victories and brings my every desire to pass. But despicable people are like thorns, all of them good for nothing because they can't be carried by hand. No one can touch them except with an iron bar or the shaft of a spear. They must be burned up with fire right on the spot. And now turn with me to the gospel text for today, which is John, the 18th chapter, verses 33 through 40. And if you're with me this morning and able, would you stand with me in honor of the Lord's word today as we get to John 18. Pilate went back into the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, did, do you say this on your own or have others spoken to you about me? Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, my kingdom doesn't originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. So you are a king, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king? I was born and came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate asked. After Pilate said this, he returned to the Jewish leaders and said, I find no grounds for any charge against him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted, not this man. Give us Barabbas. And then in parentheses, John writes, Barabbas was an outlaw. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The older I get and the longer I pursue this calling, the more I'm convinced that a good church is not defined necessarily by how many people show up, although really glad you're here with us today and uh, room for more. But ultimately, um, I don't think a church is ultimately defined by how many people it, it gets to come and gather for worship. And I'm not even convinced that the strength of a church is defined by its resource, although Thank you, especially given what we've been through the last 20 months. We're in really fine shape, and thank you for the way that you are generous with God. But ultimately, I believe God judges 
a church based on this factor. What kind of people is that church forming? And how are we being shaped and formed into the likeness and reflection of Jesus? For if we are big, but we are not being formed to be reflections of Jesus, uh, we're not much of a church. And if we have all sorts of resources, but we fail to be the kind of people God wants us to be in the world and for the sake of the world, then, then we haven't done very well. And along that line, then, we think a lot about formation. In other words, we kind of sit around as a staff and think week after week, how should we mess with them this week? Um, <laughs> How can we help be formed into the image and likeness of Christ? There are lots of ways that we try to do that. One of the ways, and I, I think it's a significant way, one of the ways we try to do that is, kind of, is by keeping time in a certain kind of way. I don't know if it's clicked for you yet, but um, yesterday it finally clicked for me. Oh, yes, the holiday season is upon us. Um, <laughs> There were a number of things that, that, that did that for me. The first was um, my wife gently prodding us to bring the tree out of the attic. And uh, the tree got set up in the nativity scenes. And so we're not quite finished decorating, but, but it's starting to look a lot like Christmas at the Daniel's house. Um, the lights were already on outside, but we finally plugged them in. That was good. Um, it was wonderful, uh, those of you who helped yesterday, it was great to, have the, to be host for the Boise Rescue Mission yesterday. And as I mentioned in the prayer, it was great. Um, they were able to distribute 1,000 boxes of food and serve about 900 meals yesterday. And so thank you for those of you who participated. I'm so glad that we can be an instrument of grace to that ministry and to the lives of those that were touched. But, but just even getting to be part of that just made me start to feel like, oh yeah, it's, I'm ready. It's that season. And then waking up this morning and there was frost everywhere. Like I know it's weird that I've started to look forward to that, but it, it too made me think, oh, here it comes. And, and we're working out who's going to do the airport runs this week for family and all those kinds of things that begin to help us feel that way. As a church, we are convinced that, that that's a part of formation, keeping time in certain kinds of ways. So although it's kind of odd for a kind of new year, if you will, to begin kind of towards the end of November, but next week actually begins a new liturgical year for us. It's the beginning of the season of Advent. And we're going to do a number of things to try to pay attention to that. So there's some decorating that's going to take place in the sanctuary and in, in the church today. Uh, would love for you to get a hold of the devotional, um, come peasant king and, and participate daily in that. We're gonna try to do some things, um, pay attention this week to some announcements about a, a kind of Saturday event that will be a time of preparing our hearts for Advent. We'll do some Wednesday night things, but we're gonna do some daily scripture readings that will be available to you online. Would love for you to kind of participate with us in that kind of way to allow Advent to shape us. But Advent is actually a really old tradition. In fact, we're not qu quite sure who started or when it started, but we know that much of the church started to do this right around the end of the 400s. So this is almost 1,600 years or so that the church has been keeping and beginning its year with a kind of fast. For Advent is a kind of fast where uh, we let it get kind of dark and we'll have an Advent wreath. We'll keep the lights on, but the Advent wreath is meant to kind of light the darkness and prepare us and, and recognize, oh, the world is, is desperate for, 
for the peace of Christ and hope of Christ and joy of Christ and the love of Christ to break in. We need that to break into our darkness. And so we use these days that are getting more and more dark and a little bit more cold. We're using them to help us feel that sense of longing. And I know that we'll cheat a little bit and we'll sing some happy carols over the next few weeks, but we're really supposed to sing depressing songs in D and E minor for the next few weeks, right? Come the long expected Jesus. Like we're supposed to feel that stuff in our bones for the next four weeks or so. And we do that because then this fasting of Advent then gets broken by the feast of Christmas. And the 12 days of Christmas that leads to the feast of Epiphany. And then we get these weeks to celebrate that the light of Christ indeed has come into the world. And the light begins to make all things new. And Christ has come and invites us into this kingdom and begins to teach us what this kingdom looks like. And that's so wonderful. But then we get into that for a few weeks and we realize, oh man, what he's calling us to, we're still not quite there. So maybe we should have another fast. And so we spend 40 days in a fast called Lent where we make it dark again and we put the cross, we move the cross into the middle. For 40 days, not counting the Sundays, we stand beneath the shadow of the cross and recognize, oh man, when we look at Jesus and look at us, there's this huge difference. And for those 40 days, we sing a lot about sin. We sing about that because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We recognize there's so much still to be formed in our lives. And we wrestle with that darkness and that sin culminating on Good Friday when we leave in darkness and silence so that we can come back on Resurrection Sunday and sing, Christ the Lord is risen today and get all goosebumpy and we can get lilies in here and make your allergies go crazy. It's wonderful. And the cool thing about the way it's set up is about the time all this coldness is going to go away and things begin to spring around us, it's about that time we celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And so even when we leave, we kind of feel it in our bones that indeed sin doesn't get the last word, but grace does. Darkness doesn't get the last word, but light does. Death doesn't get the last word, life does. It's so great, right? And we get to participate in that feast. So we go from fasting to feasting and fasting to feasting. And we kind of culminate that feast with a birthday party for the church called Pentecost and another one called Trinity Sunday where we celebrate, oh, as we've experienced God, we experience God as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the uniqueness of the Godhead put together. And then we get into what's we, this season we've been in, which is called common time or ordinary time. But it doesn't really mean, oh, great, common time, ordinary time. <gasps> right? It really means now that we've experienced the resurrection, let's figure out how to live that as our common life together. Or it's not just, oh, this time is ordinary. It means how do we order our life to the light of the resurrection? And all of that's really fun. And we've been doing that now for several months. And today's the last Sunday before we start all over again. And today, if you haven't picked up the theme yet, in every song we've sung, and we've read all four texts for today, as we think about the vortex for today, they're all about the kingship of Christ. For today is what's called the reign of Christ or Christ the King Sunday. By the way, just a little bonus teaching, of all of the days that we participate as we try to keep that rhythm and try to allow that to shape and form us as Christians, today is actually the newest of those traditions. For celebrating today as Christ the King Sunday is really new. It's only 96 years old. 
this Sunday was established back in 1926, 25, 1925. As a way of recognizing, as the church globally came out of the First World War, the church began to realize that war was fought primarily among peoples who thought of themselves, and I'll use air quotes here, thought of themselves as Christian nations. These Christian nations fought this violent and bloody and horrible war with each other. And the church began to realize part of the problem is that there are other identities, national identities, political philosophical traditions, ethnic and racial identities, all sorts of identities that have claimed us. And we have called other things, if you will, king, and not Christ. And so before we get out of this year, the church said what we should recognize is this whole year, fast and feast, fast and feast, ordinary time where we've, ordained, where we've ordered our life according to the gospel. It all culminates with this, that we are a people who call Christ king. And so we, we heard and we're called to worship today with Psalm 132. By the way, again, just a little bonus teaching here. Every Sunday, we're trying to mess with you. And if you haven't figured it out yet, let me, let me just expose one of the ways we're trying to mess with you. Every Sunday, there's a kind of rhythm to what we're trying to do here. Pastor Brent's not here today, but he wrote a wonderful book on worship where he thinks about worship as God breathing in and breathing out. And so every Sunday we start with a call to worship because the sense is we didn't just come because this is what we do every week, but because God is breathing in and drawing God's people close to God's self. And so we respond to that call to worship. And today we responded with a call to worship that indeed says the Lord is king over all creation. And God breathes us in. And then there's two important things that we do today. We bring a bunch of stuff with us. Some of you brought kids. Wonderful. Go home with them too. Um, <laughs> but we bring our family. We bring each other. But we bring praises. And we offer those to God. This is very important. I hope you liked the kind of worship we did today, but we weren't really thinking about you and it was planned. For truly God is the audience today. And so the question was, was God honored in the praises that we offered today? And we bring offerings and gifts, the resources of our lives to give back to God. And we even bring the messy stuff. And so we come in prayer because God doesn't just invite us to bring the joyous and happy things, but he also says, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And so we bring the difficult things of our lives. And so we give, but then we also receive for Christ is here and receives our burdens, receives our gifts. But now in the word speaks to us. And then here's the part that I really do love, and not just because we get to go home, but the sending part. That then we are sent out into the world. So I have to tell you, I love to get to pray the benediction over you. And I hope you stay for it. Some of you don't. And you'll spend your whole life not blessed. 
but I love to get to bless you. In fact, I teased one of my former congregations. They said, what do you hope we look for in the next pastor? I said, my hope is that the first question you ask your next pastoral candidate is you pray a benediction, right? Because I love that sense that we are not just the church when we're gathered here this morning from 1045 to noon, but we're still the church as we leave this place, blessed and sent by God as he exhales and breathes us out into God's creation. Are you with me? formed and shaped. But we have come today to recognize that God is king. So if you have your Bible still open, 2 Samuel, the Old Testament text for today, the last words of David. It's interesting that the last words are given of David is actually a song, not a bad way to go out. But David sings a song about kingship. If you were with us last Sunday, the Old Testament text was actually the beginning. It was 1 Samuel, and it was the song of Hannah, where Hannah has this child, and she sings a song about how this child is going to bring down the mighty and exalt the lowly, how this new thing's going to happen through this child. And in many ways, what the lectionary is trying to do is start us in this kingship of David. And it's fascinating how it fast forwards through the whole life of David and just gets to his death. There was some good stuff that happened in the middle, but let's do the beginning and the end. And when we get to the end, David recognizes that something unique was going on from the hand of God in David's reign. If you know that in-between stuff, you know kingship is kind of a weird idea in Israel. In 1 Samuel, the eighth chapter, which I think is such an important text in the scripture, Israel, kind of tired of the period of the judges, rightly so, comes to Samuel, now their leader, and says, we are tired of this life and we're kind of tired of you too. Give us a king, and this is the key line, so that we can be like the other nations. This is a problem, right? Because God has delivered Israel out of bondage of Egypt in order to not be like other nations, but to be a unique nation who would embody the Torah, embody God's life, so that they could be a light and reflection of the way God intends us to live in the world. And so God's not real happy with this, but eventually grants it. And we get Saul, who turns out to be kind of a king, just kind of like everybody else. And so again, working through Samuel, God calls an unexpected one, the Hakatan, the runt of the litter in his own family, calls up David and anoints David to be this leader. And David has some good aspects and bad aspects, but on the end of his life, he realizes, oh, this is how kingship works among God's people. Whoever follows me in my line should embody the best parts of what God, and the whole song is not so much about what David has accomplished, but what God has accomplished through David. And that this king has to be like that, recognize that ultimately it's God's work that's going on in David, and that the king, whatever else the king does, can't make Israel like all the other nations, but has to embody that divine orientation of life in the way that they lead the people. And if they do that, they will be blessed and God will bless. But if they don't do that, the last verses are about how they will be like a thorn and God won't be able to handle them or deal with them. This was like, you know, pre-gardening glove era where David says, you know, like you have to deal with the stuff in your garden with a big stick. 
or the spear. And it's just not workable, so all you can do is throw it out. But David imagines that the leader of God's people would be somebody who would embody a particular uniqueness and lead God's people in that way and be empowered by the Spirit to do that. Now, if we jump to the John text, certainly the scripture understands Jesus as the fulfillment of that song that David sings. I would say, when we say that, we don't just mean that like David's song is a kind of prediction that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of. As much as we mean it this way, David sings about the expectations of the kind of leader that would embody all that God intends, and Jesus fills that full. Takes all those expectations and fills them all the way to the brim. It's the ultimate embodiment of that. And so the Gospel of John in particular narrates this, this way, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and this unique presence of God dwells in our midst and begins to draw disciples. And indeed, Jesus is not just telling us the way, the truth, and the life, but is the way, the truth, and the life. But ultimately, and I wish we had a long time to walk through chapter 18, it is such an amazing piece of storytelling on John's part where Pilate becomes the embodiment of the empire, a particular kind of king. And poor Pilate's stuck. He keeps having to go outside and talk to the people who don't want to come inside because that's contaminated. But then he has to go back in and talk to Jesus, and that doesn't usually go well, and so then he has to go back out and talk to the people. And that doesn't go well, so he has to go back and talk to Jesus. It's, it's wonderful storytelling. And the whole story is about how Jesus is on trial. But you don't have to read very carefully to realize it's not really Jesus who's on trial here. For certainly Peter's on trial out in the courtyard. And by the way, that trial doesn't go well for Peter as the representation of all of us who follow Jesus. And Pilate is on trial and that doesn't go well. And the religious leadership is on trial. And that really doesn't go well, as we'll see in a moment. But Pilate and Jesus have a conversation about kingship. Pilate's very confused because he doesn't really see what he imagines to be a king in front of him. And so he asks questions about, are you a king? That's not an unusual question. 200 years before Jesus, there was a Jewish man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. I'm going to confess some nerdiness to you today in preparation for this season. I just read first and second Maccabees, the story of Judas Maccabeus and the revolution against the Syrians, the story that sets up the Jewish season of Hanukkah. But it's a fascinating story about Judas getting everybody together and in semi-miraculous ways, having, you know, conquering and being able to reestablish the purity of the temple. And out of that, Judas and the Maccabean family become kings for a time in Israel's history. 25 years before Jesus, Herod the Great takes on the Parthians 
and wins. And in gratitude, Rome decides to give him a title. You are king of the Jews. And allow him to have authority over that territory. And so Pilate is used to little kings coming about, revolutions happening. And he's got to find out, is this one of those like Judas Maccabeus that's going to be a problem for us? Or is this one like Herod? That's, we need to keep within certain parameters, but it's okay. And so he asks Jesus, are you a king? To which Jesus responds, listen, if I were the kind of king you're asking me about, my followers would have acted very differently than they're acting right now. We actually would have been participating in a violent revolution. So you are a king. <laughs> well, you're saying that I'm a king. But here is the mistake. And if I've lost you, lean in right here for just a minute. Here's the mistake we often make when we read this text. We think that when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, we think he means this. Oh, Jesus has brought us a spiritual kingdom. Pilate gets to run the physical kingdom. Jesus gets to run the spiritual kingdom. Which usually means, if we think that's what the text means, then we get to be kind of Christian on Sundays, but we get to do everything else like the world Monday through Saturday. But that is not what Jesus is saying. Nor is he saying... Well, I am a king, but my kingdom's not around right now, but it's coming. And so someday that kingdom will come. What John is arguing is, indeed, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It does not derive from this world. It is not shaped like this world. It is not, it does not emerge into reality like the kingdoms of this world always emerge into reality with revolution and violent overthrow. But it is very much a kingdom that may not have come from here. It may have come from heaven, but it was from heaven and it came here and it became flesh and it now dwells among us and it is now taking root among us, inviting us to participate and follow in it as though Christ is king. And to become a people then who are very much living in the world, but like Jesus are very much not of the world and the way it operates. And this is why Pilate's on trial, because Pilate only knows how to operate in those ways. And that's why Jesus is so confusing to him. But here's the key. Pilate goes out and asks the crowd, primarily made up of religious leadership, who do you want? And please underline this part of the story. Who do you want? The king, and it's very important the way he phrases this. It may be derogatory out of the lips of Pilate, but John means it seriously. Do you want the king? Or do you want Barabbas? Who, again, John in parentheses says, he's a bandit. Which probably doesn't mean that, that Barabbas broke into somebody's house and stole their VCR. Well, that was a really old reference, wasn't it? <laughs> he can have our VCR. <laughs> Stole your flat screen. Not that kind of thief, but it's likely that Barabbas was a zealot, somebody who is in custody for the very things they've accused Jesus of doing. So in other words, Pilate is asking, here's what... 
Here's your options. Do you want the king and this kingdom that this king represents? Or do you want the same old way of life represented in Barabbas? And here is the shocking, terrifying, heartbreaking part of the story John tells. The people shout, we want Barabbas. By the way, earlier they shouted, we have no king but Caesar. We want Barabbas. The reason why that's so challenging and the reason why this Sunday is so important is because we are constantly asked this question. And the question is not, are you religious rather than secular? Are you a church attender? or a pagan football watcher? It's not a question of are you religious or not religious, it is this question, because too often the religious get this answer wrong. We are religious, but we still have no king but Caesar, and we still have no politic but Barabbas's. And so we come this morning to proclaim again and again that all that this year has been about feast and fast, feast and fast, time ordered by the kingdom of God leads to this question, are we a people who are citizens of that king or are we citizens of another kind of kingdom? And we come together this morning to say, oh, we are citizens of that kingdom. Oh, lead us, Christ Jesus. This week, um, you've probably been paying attention to lots of upheaval and cultural stuff going on, a lot of it surrounding politics. Some of it centered in debates around parties and votes within the Senate and House. Actual trials, Washington, D.C., Oklahoma, Wisconsin. Lots of cultural conversations about that. We're a culture with probably way more pundits than we need, but, but good conversations about, as a people, are we getting so identified with particular parties or subsets that we have identified with that we've lost ability to work for the common good? That's a really important question. Questions about what is the right way for us to hold people accountable? What judgments are right and not right for a culture? That's a really important conversation. Conversations about is justice equal for everybody or do, do people of different races and different economic and education status, do they get treated differently? That's a really important cultural conversation question for us and for the nation. But even within those questions, I, I couldn't help but reflect on the ways in which, even as we have those as cultural questions, how much those have affected us. How often our life together, even as Christians, is shaped by, by the creation of coalitions and 
power plays and, and leadership far more concerned about holding on to position. <laughs> then as Pilate asks, what is truth? Ways in which conversations about how how we are so shaped by our fear of the other and therefore can justify almost any action that is done out of fear of the other. Even from those of us who for the next four weeks will celebrate that we are a people who are to be shaped by hope and by peace and by joy and by love can lean right into saying, oh no, we're people shaped by fear. Not to cause trouble, but it's Christ the King Sunday. Who's, what king do you want? This morning in the liturgical service, service we call Sacred Rhythms. I love that service. Um, my sermons are a little shorter. That may be an ad for you to come. Um, and they occur a little earlier in the service than this one does. But every week in that service, the sermon is followed by just a moment of silence. But then it's followed by a prayer of confession. We do it every week. I almost have it memorized. It's gotten down deep into the core of my bones. And I knew it was coming, but I couldn't wait to be able to pray it out of this message. And here's the way the prayer goes. At the end of the message, the minister prays this. Christ is he who takes away the sins of the world. God has defeated the power of sin and death. Let us confess our sins and penitence and faith to the one who is eager to forgive, heal, and transform sinners into followers. And then the whole people pray this in response. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. In your compassion, forgive us our sins, known and unknown, things done and left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And here's the line. We have often chosen temporary human-derived kingdom, kings and kingdoms over your son, Jesus Christ. We have often chosen temporary human-derived kings and kingdoms over your son, Jesus Christ. We have often chosen temporary human-derived kings and kingdoms over your son, Jesus Christ. To which the minister prays, Lord, have mercy. The people respond, Lord, have mercy. And the minister prays, Christ, have mercy. And the people respond, Christ, have mercy. And one more time, the minister prays, Lord, have mercy. And the people respond, Lord, have mercy. Oh. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. 
Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, Lord. favorite verse is this one. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him, Lord of all. To And crown him Lord of all. Lord Jesus Christ, on this Christ the King Sunday, at the end of a year where we have feasted or fasted and feasted, fasted and feasted, tried to order our life by your way and your truth and your life, we still come to the very last day of this year and we confess we have often chosen temporary kings and kingdoms over you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. And so we'll come back next week and we will fast. Because we know that we are shaped more by other identities than we are by belonging to you. Shaped more by our fears than we are by your hope and your peace and your joy and your love. And so we need you to come. We need you to come and fill full the expectations of the kind of leader that God's people needs. We will come and fast because we need you to break into our lives and make things new. And we will fast because we need you to come again and make all creation your new creation. And so we will again fast and feast and fast and feast and order our lives by your word. And so have mercy on us today. Come and be king of our lives. For it's in the King's name that we pray, Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's affirm that together this morning.